Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. And welcome to the Common Bridge. It's November the 15th, and as the smoke starts to clear from this election, Rich, how have you been? Pretty well, Brian. Hope that you mean smoke as a metaphor, uh, given <laughs> what happened over the weekend. So before we get going, Rich, i got to congratulate you on the popularity of your show. We hit 150,000 downloads, and um, that's exciting. Brian, we've got some great episodes coming up. I have some really interesting guests lined up. Got a gentleman who really speaks to the American dream. Really interesting fellow from the West Coast. Looking for some talks about climate change and forest management with some academics and experts in that field. A really good guest who's published a book talking about the financial markets and too big to fail. Some very interesting views on immigration with the anticipated change in administration. And I don't mean southern border immigration, but some of the different skilled workers that are coming across. And a very well-regarded academic who has drawn some parallels with the United States, along with the civilizations of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So there's some really good episodes coming up as we clear through this. And those are going to be fantastic episodes, and I think your listening audience is really going to like that. But let's get to today's episode. Rich, in the past, you've been tough on the GOP, the DNC, and the reporting industry. Who do you think out of those are the really most, come out really the most damaged out of this election cycle? Well, I I think that's actually a really easy question in in my book. So actually, both political parties did pretty well. Of course, the Democrats captured the White House, but the Republicans did really well at the state legislatures. They did really well in the U.S. House of Representatives, capturing probably, it looks like, around 10 seats. And unless something really goes awry in Georgia for them, they're going to retain control of the Senate. So I think both parties are probably reasonably happy with the outcome. Uh, I don't know that anybody's really going to shed many tears over the exit of a very unusual president. But clearly, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the people in the reporting industry who were not doing well have managed to dig themselves yet um, a deeper hole. I got to ask you, though, sort of a, a micro uh, dig into that last statement you made. Do you think that there's half of that de- Democratic Party, though, that feels that they did not do well? I mean, we're talking about going in there, taking the presidency, taking the Senate, increasing the House. There are some out there that say that this was a disappointing election for the Democrats. Well, I think that speaks to the division in the Democratic Party today, and probably one of the chief challenges on the political front for uh, President-elect Biden, that he has a coalition of very far left wing of his party. He has some of the more traditionalist or establishment Democrats. And, you know, there's an age gap between the most obvious is, you know, Nancy Pelosi versus Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So in those conditions, I think that if you're a Democratic person, you should be pretty happy that your person is headed to the White House. 
he's got a very difficult task ahead of him. If you're the Republicans, you've had your party, you know, ridden like a cheap pony by a guy who's not really a party loyalist in Donald Trump. Uh, I don't believe that the Republican Party is the, quote, party of Trump. I just think that they have been decimated and they must feel pretty good, I'm surmising, that they've escaped this election cycle with only losing the White House and actually doing pretty well every place else. And again, we have to see what happens in Georgia. And I know that nearly everybody is hoping for at least one of the Republicans, Leffler or Purdue, to win their seat or hold their seat. And that, of course, includes Joe Biden, because I don't think yeah. Biden wants to deal with that. Well, that was my um, next question I was going to ask you. If, if you're Biden, who would you rather deal with or, or would you rather fight with, Mitch McConnell or the far left of your own party? Yeah, there's a, a real choice for you, isn't it? You know? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and look, and then you also have people saying that, hey, we got to make Biden a one-term president or even less. But enough about Kamala Harris. You asked about the uh, the way that the, the media has been treated, and they're looking in astonishment and saying, hey, we've got half the country that doesn't believe what we're telling them about the election. Right. And I'm looking at this and saying, are you kidding me? You've reported polling that showed, you know, during election week, some places that, you know, Biden winning 15% more of the vote than Trump. This morning, uh, the Associated Press, here's the headline, Brian. Violent clashes in D.C. after Trump backers election protest. And it says nighttime clashes with counter demonstrators led to fistfights, at least one stabbing and more than 20 arrests. This is Associated Press story. Now, listen, finally, in paragraph 13 and 14, in a pattern that kept repeating itself, Trump supporters who approached the area were harassed, doused with water, and saw their MAGA hats and pro-Trump flags snatched and burned amid cheers. Right. Was it a confrontation or, or was it an ambush? Right. Exactly. And, you know, videos on social media showed demonstrators and counter demonstrators trading shoves, punches and slaps. This is why people are having difficulty trusting the news media. So what you're saying is the media has really dug themselves into a hole and people don't know what to believe anymore coming out of there. I don't think any thinking, honest person can say that, you know, the Russian collusion narrative and the impeachment narrative and all of the hysterias of the day were anything but embarrassments for the media. And look, and everybody's stealing themselves for a world where Joe Biden walks on water. He's going to be the greatest president since George Washington and Abe Lincoln and FDR and um, anyone else and Ronald Reagan all wrapped into one. And here's the other really telling thing. While we just had historic turnout of over 150 million voters in this cycle, while the election was in dispute and the drama high, guess what? The high watermark for the legacy news broadcast, three and a half million people looked at NBC's special newscast. If that doesn't tell you that the reporting industry has lost their way and lost their credibility, I don't know what does. So, Rich, for the second election cycle in a row, the national polling services have been significantly 
off base. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, we talked about this before the election. And I think that as the internals come out, we're going to learn more and more. So it is very, very difficult. Again, in this media environment, and you don't know where to find people with you know, new rules about who's going to become a likely voter and actually, you know, return a ballot versus get off work and go to the polls that day. There was a lot of moving parts, but the polls have only leaned one way. And now as some of the internals start coming out, this is Detroit Free Press this morning. Donald Trump did better in the city of Detroit against Joe Biden than he did against Hillary Clinton. In the rest of the county, he did worse. With black men, there was a 7% of the vote when uh, it was Clinton and Trump, and Clinton took 88% of that vote. Biden only got 84% of the vote of black men in Michigan. With black women, Hillary Clinton, 96%. Biden only 93%. These are the kinds of things that are defying the narrative that is being pushed. People are rejecting the story and trying to look for real information. And, you know, I'd love to see a mainstream media breakdown of some of the other data around mail-in ballots and return ballots and who voted where. And, and of course, you know, exit polling is very difficult to do because you don't know what people are going to tell you. But the Republicans thought they were actually doing better in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, based on the number of mail-in ballots requested and returned in those states. That was a greater number than the Democrats. Right. And, and there are some statistical anomalies that are just really hard to explain. I'm not saying they're not inexplainable, but the notion of quit looking, move on, you know, in a, in a hotly contested election, I don't know, makes me think. So, Rich, I'd like to move on to tech companies. And specifically, we could talk about two of these things, either Section 230 of the 1996 Decency Act or, and or maybe, we should talk a little bit about uh, unfair practices or, uh, you know, their, their, their lawsuits coming up against the Sherman Act, which I think is fascinating as well. What are your thoughts on that? I think that we really need to litigate this issue and look at the law as it exists today and where the technology is. And I think Professor Crane, that was a guest on our show, spoke to this. We have an unwieldy technology in a very, very difficult place. They're not just a platform that anybody can publish on, which would you know, shield them like the phone company can't be sued if somebody makes a threatening phone call. They're just, you know, providing the access. So they've moved beyond that. And at one extreme, they become a platform for misinformation, rumor, innuendo, hate speech, hit jobs, etc. And at what point do they need to have some kind of editing so that they're not dragged into that role. And I keep going back to one of our very early podcasts with Mort Krim, the legendary broadcaster, when he spoke about the reporters bringing in the story and then the various levels of editors that would review and vet it before they said, okay, we think we've got this right. We've corroborated it with independent sources. We're not relying on somebody that won't go on the record. Okay, we're going to run with the story. 
that's kind of the role that a Twitter and a Facebook and the other technology companies are being pushed to. But unlike the old days of media, where reporters were employed by this news agency who had the checks and balances in with their employees, Twitter has got anybody that wants to take the five minutes it takes to sign up. And is Twitter really responsible for vetting all that content? And notice how quiet things have gone on the alleged Hunter Biden laptop. And look, if we never hear from that story again, then we pretty much know it was kind of like the, you know, Dan Rather pulling out a memo for of George Bush's time in the Air National Guard that was clearly a hoax. It took people about five minutes to see that that had been printed on a laser printer. <laughs> That's right. It was printed on a laser printer like 20 years before laser printing technology was even invented. <laughs> I forgot about that. And, you know, good for Twitter and Facebook if they made the right call. If they didn't make the right call, it opens up another discussion. All right, Rick. So uh, earlier last week when Joe Biden declared victory, one of the first things he said is, I want to be the president of all Americans, not just the ones that voted for me. And and he's made a call for unity in the United States. Do you think that's really possible in these divided times? Well, first of all, I think uh, he made a great speech. Unfortunately, it turned out he didn't write it because the guy was <laughs> from CNN, right? But but yeah, but it was a great speech. Okay, <laughs> I, I thought he he hit the right tones. Um, you know, when you think about what Abraham Lincoln said at the end of the Civil War and prior to Reconstruction about we're going to bind up the nation's wounds and that you know with charity toward all and malice toward none. And I was recalled that part about malice toward none. And that's the thing that is not in control today. We have already Senator Warren starting to demonize and use hate speech. I've seen people saying, gosh, these Trump people are bringing their kids to demonstrations and, and it's all about hate. It's not all about hate that these are people that love their country and are bringing forward what look to be legitimate complaints. But eliminating that malice is really the thing that I think is going to be hard to do. And I think it's going to be really difficult because the great melting pots that we used to have, universal military service, where at that time young men were drafted, didn't matter what zip code you were from, you were going to go do your two years. Uh, the public schools, which now have you know morphed into this palette of different educational options. So that melting pot is gone. But also because of the pandemic, we've lost some of our other affinity groups, our sports teams, our local schools, of course, our communities. I know people that have moved residences during this time, they know no one in town because they haven't been able to go out and meet anybody. And so what's left is the party and the subhuman opposition. Their children should be taken away from them. It's really gotten that ridiculous, hasn't it? I mean, people have just been drawn to decisive political corners. And it's sort of the last bastion right now of personal interaction. 
I don't think they're listening to themselves. They're spewing hate, disdain, and disgust against their fellow citizens that they never talk to and concurrently trying to take the high moral ground or claim the high moral ground. It's patently absurd. We've got contributors to the Washington Post uh, suggesting we should, we should create lists and maintain lists of people who worked for the Trump administration so they will not be able to earn a living past this point, whether it's on the college circuit or with books or speeches or anything else, not even earn a living. And that, again, that's driving toward that 1984 model. And don't even get me started on that because of the number of parallels. But look, if any president during my lifetime, and I think I counted, I've had 13 during my lifetime, and Joe Biden will be the eighth during my marriage. So it's not like it's a short list or anything like that. Mm -hmm. If any of my presidents called on me and said, we want you to serve in X capacity, if my president called, I would go. If I was called to advise on, you know, something like healthcare policy that I know something about, cybersecurity that I know something about, privacy that I know something about, I would serve and serve wholeheartedly, no matter who the president is, period. But this woman that would then want to list you once you're gone as being part of this, you know, and, and, and this this then speaks to the can- cancel culture, right? We want to cancel you if you were in the last administration. And to that, I would say, let those who would refuse to serve pick up the first stone and explain to me how we're going to make this a better country if we chill the enthusiasm or the participation of people that could speak to making it a better country. You know, it'd be absurd if you know people were called to serve in the Trump administration, just like they were called to serve in the Obama administration, and you know, just like they were called to serve in the Bush administration, the Clinton administration before that. It'd be absurd. So, Rich, do you want to shift gears before we go into the next topic? I'm going to do a riff here on a little bit about the Trump presidency and how the heck he got away with this. It is astonishing. We picked this guy. He clearly wasn't capable of being the president of the United States. In his entire time, he never showed that he really had an interest in learning it or perhaps just didn't have the aptitude. And he also has massive personal issues. And I think at this transition time, I'm disgusted by the behavior. He should be saying something like, we appear to be losing the election. We are going to seek every legal remedy to you know, validate the will of the people. And while we're doing that, we are going to be cooperating with the Biden so that the country gets through the transition. That would be the good thing to do. But his obsession with only doing what is good for him is right now getting to the point of danger. But the thing to keep in mind is this. Trump didn't just come out of nowhere and show up in the White House. So, look, when he was running in the general election, the Access Hollywood tape should have eliminated him from the presidency. His birther theory should have eliminated him from the presidency. His allegations of colluding with Russia 
should have eliminated him from the presidency. And now this refusal to concede, you'd think would eliminate any semblance of support or some balanced historical treatment. You don't think he'll concede. Do you think he'll just ride this out? I want to make a broader point, okay? Okay, sure. So so the the, the Access Hollywood, the birther theory, the, the collusion allegations, and the havoc being wreaked in the transition. Guess who had a hand for sure the conduct around the Hollywood access tape, the Russian collusion hoax, and the wreaking havoc during the transition. Every single one of those happened through a Clinton. Bill Clinton abusing a 23-year-old and then first lady, then candidate Hillary Clinton, slut-shaming her. It set the bar low. Trump colluding with Russia. We know all of the Russian disinformation bought and paid for by the Clinton campaign. And while there's no direct link to Hillary Clinton starting the birther theory when she was running against Obama in the primaries, there's a lot of people near her that made sure that this happened, including their senior strategist Mark Penn in 2007, urging Hillary to emphasize Obama's upbringing in Hawaii and Indonesia, just to kind of you know say maybe he's not a full American. So when politics gets dirty, I don't know who does the laundry. But we've got Trump, there's a stink there, and we need to make sure that we hold everyone accountable. But again, this goes back to your first question about the reporting industry. I think everyone's real confident that every rumor, innuendo, hint that a Republican or Trump did something is going to be amplified to the front pages, and also that anything that Biden does is going to be framed in a positive way. I think we can expect that. And that's why I think that the major news outlets just aren't being listened to these days. How does this play out for Trump? Do you think he concedes or because he's Trump, do you think he just sets up act two, stays away from it? I can't imagine a sitting president not being at inauguration day, but I don't, I also can't see Trump sitting behind Biden on inauguration day being fully supportive. When Donald Trump was inaugurated in January of 2017. George W. Bush turned to Barack Obama and said, quote, that was some weird shit. (laughs) Um, So I don't think there's any way of forecasting what this president might do. There's nothing that requires him to concede. And in fact, if you believe that Joe Biden took Hillary Clinton's advice. Neither major party candidate wrote a concession speech going into this election that we just are hopefully completing. As the electors meet and cast their ballots and the local elections are certified and you know the Electoral College makes its decision, I see Donald Trump accepting that result, but I don't necessarily see him conceding. And in fact, I think what he will do is take the position of whatever he thinks is best for his brand. <laughs> right. And if he thinks the best thing for his brand is to say, I was robbed, it was a corrupt election, I think he will do that even if it damages the country. And it will take our politics to a new low. And I think if he does do that, after all of the legal options and such are investigated, then I think that everyone of all political stripe need to reject him. And I think it also means that Joe Biden and the Democrats have to double down about the attitude of malice toward none. Here'd be a good thing. Ask Joe to Tell the Democrats, look, we haven't been 
behaving that great over the last four years either. Start with an apology. He says he wants to be everybody's president. If my party or my followers or anybody that voted for me attacked you personally, questioned your integrity, questioned your patriotism, called you a deplorable, despicable, or some other name, I apologize. We're going to start clean. That'd be a statesman-like thing to do. Now, I don't think he'll do it because I think there's too much gain in demonizing. So, Rich, what about the civil unrest in Washington, D.C. and in Portland in recent days? I thought this would calm down after the election, especially after a Biden victory. What are your thoughts about this? Well, the positive news is that a lot of the civil unrest has died down. And in fact, in Minneapolis, the citizens were saying, do not defund the police department. And again, the great example of a slogan running into the wall of reality about who suffers if there's not police protection. And you'll see some of that noise and hysteria mongering go in abeyance for four years or perhaps two years. And then we'll be hearing about it again in some of the groups that were pushed to the forefront, frankly, I think used as tools. They're going to be not supported. The politicians got out of them what they wanted. The civil unrest in Washington, D.C., which is largely driven by supporters of Donald Trump coming in to show that they support the president, that they want to see uh, more detail around the voting and they are running into the radical edges of the BLM movement. And it wouldn't be a stretch to see a COVID lockdown come just in time for Inauguration Day, where there wouldn't be able to be large crowds on the street. Oh, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. And in Portland, I think this is a different matter, that I think they're just anarchists in some respects, and they're taking advantage of the no-bail rules, uh, you know, no-cash-bail requirements uh, that were set up to, you know, keep like people that were doing like trespassing from having to spend time in jail just because they didn't have $100 to post bail and, you know, continue to go out on the street and wreak havoc. And they've got a very permissive governor and a very permissive mayor that's allowing that to continue and not enough people are standing up to them. But Portland needs to deal with that. And similarly, you're going to hear a lot of stories out of Michigan that, oh, we have this big militia problem and someone wanted to kidnap the governor. And just keep an eye on that story because a couple of these knuckleheads that had this idea, supposedly, also wanted to like hang Donald Trump as well. Yeah, they were going up and down the chain. It didn't really, they weren't really party affiliated as much as they were establishment, uh, anti-establishment. I, I just think these guys are nut jobs that they looked at a, at a name of a person uh, in the headlines. And I think it should be really interesting. None of the people that I've read about, and I haven't read about it extensively, look like they could organize anything, yet they were going to mastermind some plot. There was an FBI guy in the middle of it. It's like, okay, who's the mastermind here? Um, Because I don't think these rocket scientists were the guys putting together a way to take over the government, for God's sake. Oh, man. So so you've tipped your hand on this just a little bit, but I I want you to do a a clearer uh, uh, analysis. What do you think happens on Inauguration Day? Do you think COVID is going to play that much of of a part in this? Yes, I do think COVID will play a big part in it. In that, if you look at Joe Biden's campaign, uh, there were no big rallies. Even when they attempted to put together a crowd, they couldn't do it. They would have a very difficult time seating 
any group of any size. So I, I think that when we come to January 20th, I think Joe Biden will uh, raise his right hand. I understand Kamala Harris is going to swear him in as the president. I think it's no better than a 25% chance that Donald Trump's there. I just have a hard time imagining the traditional scene at the White House where you know Donald and Melania welcome Joe and Jill and then get in their limo and head out. Yeah, right. I don't see yeah, I don't see that either at all. I, I mean, you look Donald Trump's got to make the day all about him. Mm-hmm. And who knows what he's going to do or how he's going to do it, but I think we know it's going to be all about him. And look, the caution is this. In 2000, we had a contentious election. The Democrats fought the outcome until December 13th. It was a very rushed transition. And nine months later, airplanes were being flown into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon. And make no mistake, the enemies of this country are watching us during transition and during times of division. We have people that are watching this every day. And we have today no effective executive authority in Washington, D.C. And even the best executive teams need startup time to make all the machinery work. And this is where Donald Trump is really doing a disservice to the country, is not concurrently working on an orderly transition to protect the country, while at the same time, if he believes he's got some legitimate way of revisiting how the election was handled, that can be done through the courts while he is preparing a transition. That way, the country doesn't suffer either way. I don't think he has it in him, quite frankly. I don't think you're going to see anything but a Joe Biden inauguration on January 20th. And I do hope that we eventually move to a voting system. That's an interesting tag, Rich. What do you mean by a voting system? So I was having dinner last week with a friend of mine who is longtime technology executive. And he says to me, he goes, look, we're both technology guys. He said, we should be able to do this election in one day. Do it on a Sunday. Have everything in. We report the results on a Monday morning. And I said, yes. I said, we're talking blockchain. He says, exactly. And with blockchain technology, same thing that underpins Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. we could have everybody in the country with a highly encrypted ID backed up by a visual record of who was casting the vote. It could be done for technology savvy people on their phone, and it can be done at voting centers with assistance for those that are not as technology adept. And what you'd have then is a record of who voted. There could be zero chance of a dead person voting because there'd have to be a photograph with it. And you run those photographs through facial recognition software. That stuff's not perfect, but you can start to sort out, you know, is this the same person that voted in California that also voted in Philadelphia? Or is this the person that voted you know, nine times in Fremont, Ohio? This is such a solvable problem. If people see that the objective is free, fair, and supported elections. It's not going to be welcomed if people think there's an advantage to the crazy system we have today. I agree. Rich, is there anything else you wanted to cover on this podcast? This has been great and frightening all at the same time, but is there anything else that you want to want to cover in this? I just want to tell my listeners, thank you very much for your continued support. Really appreciate the feedback. 
And we will be making a sharp turn to our regularly scheduled policy-oriented podcast. I'm amazed (laughs) at the number of people that just like this take on the news and the political analysis. Um, What we have to do as a people is this. We have to insist that both political parties quit sparring with each other, work on policy. Both political parties quit attacking the voters of the other party. And news media do a better job reporting if you can, maybe you can't, and also, if you're a voter that is, a, in this case, a Republican reporter or a Trump supporter, and those are different, or a Democratic supporter or a Biden supporter, and those are different, quit looking at the others as less than human or as evil or anything of the sort. Talk to people. We can do this. All right. Those are great words to end on. And Rich, thanks again for your time. And we'll see you next time on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.